You're listening to a sermon originally recorded by Schweitzer United Methodist Church in Springfield, Missouri. Check us out online at sumc.co. And if this sermon blessed you, be sure to share it with someone else. Thank you so much for listening. Now, on to the message. Schweitzer. I'm David Freeman. I'm your director of Community Impact. I get to talk about my favorite book this morning. Of course it's my favorite book. I'm a preacher standing up on a stage, right? What else am I going to say? But why is the Bible the book for you, Erlai? Where are you, Erlai? Why is the Bible the book for you? We're going to try to answer that question this morning. That's what we're going to do. All right. So are you hungry right now? I don't know about any of you smelling the chocolate chip cookies or the M&M cookies coming in, make you a little bit hungry. What if, what if I dropped one of those cookies on the floor in front of you right now? Would you dive for it? No? Yeah, no, yeah, no. Okay, so I used to hang out with a bunch of uh, weird wilderness experiential educators, right? They'd take people on seven to 14 day trips, and those people were weird. They'd dive for food. And actually, when, the, when a group would first come and we'd eat our first meal with them, the instructors always dove for any bit of food that fell on the ground. And generally, those people who had no experience in the wilderness would look at our instructors as if they were insane. Right? But by day three, most of those people were diving for food too. Or they were being extremely, incredibly careful not to spill even the slightest crumb of their food. We take for granted what is easily available. And that's what those people learn about food on those trips. But they learned it about something else too. Hold up your Bible if you've got one, whatever form. Hard copy, uh, cell phone. If you've got a cell phone, you've got a Bible. You just don't even realize it, maybe. There are Bibles right outside that door. We have so many Bibles available to us. You know you didn't have to bring a Bible because we're going to project it where? On the screens. You are surrounded by the Bible. But I guarantee you, you go out in the woods with no cell phone, with only a group of people and this book for about six to eight days, and you will protect this book. You will cover it in a downpouring, drenching rain, and you will get hypothermia just to make sure it doesn't get wet. You don't believe me? Uh, You could read Brother David, God's smuggler to China, and find out what, what people went through to get this book to the Chinese house churches in the 70s and 80s and 90s when their government wouldn't allow it in, and what those people did to protect these books in the middle of those circumstances. They because they learned when it was taken away from them, they learned what we take for granted, that if you want to know Jesus Christ and you want to have a thriving, abundant life, Erlai, this is the book for you. 
for that reason, she came up to me before the service and said, are you going to answer this just specifically for me? Because that's what the, how the question is phrased. So there you go. It's not about getting really worshiping the book of the Lord, right? It's about worshiping the Lord of the book. And this is the way you get to know him. Uh, I'm not going to dive a lot into all of the arguments and polemical things there are out there about how valid this book is and how it stood up to the historical challenges of it. If you're there and you're kind of cynical about this book, I get it. Uh, I'll tell part of my story later about almost becoming an atheist. And uh, I recommend a couple of books. If if you're there, because I'm not going to dive that deeply in this sermon to that area of scholarship. But uh, Evidence That Demands a Verdict is a really good book I would recommend for you by Josh McDowell, who set out to prove once and for all, finally, that this book was false, right? And The Case for Christ, Lee Strobel, who was an investigative reporter who set out basically to do the same thing. I recommend both of those books. But for now, we're going to dig into this book and see what it says about itself. 2 Peter 1, 16 through 21. This is what Peter in his old age. You know, Peter, the guy who jumped out of the boat and actually walked on the water for a few steps. This is what he is telling the churches. For we were not making up clever stories when we told you about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes when he received honor and glory from God the Father. What's he talking about? Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration. You can look that one up. Go Google Mount of Transfiguration and read that story. It's an incredible story. The voice from the majestic glory of God said to him, This is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. We ourselves heard that voice from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And because of that experience... We have greater confidence in the message proclaimed by the prophets, you know, the rest of this book. You must pay close attention to what they wrote, for their words are like a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and Christ the morning star shines in your heart. Above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding, or from human initiative. Friends, I've tried to write a book. It ain't fun. I mean, it it takes prompting and a little bit of, uh, to get a book written. No, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit, and they spoke from God. What Peter says is, folks, this book, these, these are the words of God to us to teach us how to have the light of his son who he sent into the world. Wow. The witness of scripture, it's, it's timeless. Relevant to us then and relevant to us now. Yeah, okay, so are there cultural contexts in scripture that must be considered and weighed? Yes. Is it challenging to dig into that book and figure out what it says sometimes? Oh, if you've ever read through Leviticus or Numbers, you'll say yes, right? And yet, it is the story of God's salvation history for all of us. We need to read it 
all of its uh, appreciated its peaks and valleys, all the big stories, the small stories, because this book, it, has, it starts off with really great good news. And then it kind of spends a lot of time showing us the bad news. But then, in the end, it gives us the good news again. So the good news it starts with is that we are image bearers. Human beings are created in the image of God. We have intrinsic value because of that. And because of that, he loves us. He loves you because you look, you're the spitting image. You're an image bearer. But before you let that go to, that, go to your head, the bad news that this book just tells us, and we, we know, I mean, you, you just watch your children grow up and you know this. <laughs> we are all seriously flawed by sin. And, and frankly, we're kind of at a loss to do anything about that, to help ourselves. We desperately need something. And Scripture tells us who that something is. That's the rest of the good news. You often hear the phrase, good news. Go tell the good news. You hear it at Christmas a lot because the good news is that God came in our form, in the form of Jesus Christ. And he died on the cross for you and resurrected for you to restore that image bearer status and to begin his reign on this earth through us now. Yeah, there are a lot of promises about what's going to happen later, but there's a lot of promises about now being an image bearer for him. You know what? It is interesting. I, I actually, I've thought about writing a little book, and one day I might. Dave's Guide to Reading the Bible Through, if you've never been able to do it before. And I want to just go through and give people all the fun stories to read and, and the stuff to skip the first time. <sighs> How many of you have started out to try to read? Don't show me your hand. I started trying to read the Bible through. I mean, I started probably 20 times before I actually did it, right? And I'd get about to Exodus 21 and peter out. I just couldn't make myself do it. Until I finally learned in later life, hey, I could just skip right over to Judges to those really cool stories. Anyway, that's for another time. Read that book when it comes out some 20 years in the future, maybe. Yet, you know, there's just all sorts of stories, ups and downs, catastrophes. Have you read any catastrophes in here? Oh, yeah, Sodom and Gomorrah, destroyed, lady turns to salt. That's a catastrophe. It doesn't seem like there's redemption there. There's, there, There's catastrophe in the small stories. There's catastrophe in the big stuff. There's stories of redemption, and there's stories of people who didn't get redeemed because life is messy, and this book doesn't really pull any punches about that and allows us to struggle with with the challenges of it. And as we become more familiar with the Bible, we, we realize, you know, the Bible isn't here just to give us spiritual information, a nice philosophy. It's here to give us transformation. Yes, in our spirit, but in ways that also show in deeper ways between Even on your face, especially in your relationships with the people around you. Let's go to 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17. Dive back in and see what the scripture says about itself. This is a scripture that probably is familiar to many of you. If it isn't, hey, welcome to a powerful scripture. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true 
and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong. It teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. Almost sounds like a good parent. If you didn't have good parents, this can help greatly. Just scripture. I I love one of the stories coming out of China in the early years. Well, uh, late in China's history, but early to us, 70s, 80s, 90s. Brother Yun was called, he got the nickname of the Heavenly Man. Fun book. Read it if you want to know why he got the nickname of the Heavenly Man. It had something to do with being tortured and saving the church in one moment. But Brother Yun was 16 years old when he met Christ. His, there was a healing in his family. His family got saved. They, gave, they surrendered to Jesus. And Brother Yun had heard rumors that there were Bibles, a book that taught about Jesus' life. And he desperately wanted one because he, he'd never seen one. Nobody in his village had ever seen one. Nobody knew anybody who had seen a Bible. There were just rumors that they existed. And he started praying for a Bible. He prayed for weeks for a Bible. And then he fasted and prayed for weeks for a Bible. And he finally got one. It's a miraculous story. Very interesting story. Read the book. It's, it's gripping. It's page turner. And when he got that Bible, he was so hungry He'd never had it before. It'd be like you never, ever having cookies and all of a sudden getting a platter put in front of you. And he just started gobbling up the Bible. In one month, he memorized the book of Matthew. That is astounding. A few weeks after that, he had a vision from God. He was asleep. He had a very clear vision. And a clear voice said, I want you to go to a village. I think it was north of here. He woke up. He said, okay, I'm going to a village north of here. He went to a village north of there, got in the village. There were a couple people who saw him coming and said, hey, we've been praying that God would send somebody to tell us about Jesus. Can you do that? He said, yes. They gathered up a bunch of people. They all got in a room. or a, I, I don't remember the exact details of that. Hey, read it. Read the story. It's great. It's almost like the book of Acts in our time. They all gather up, and Brother Yun goes, this book... God gave me this book, and it will tell you the way of life. And then he thought, now what do I do? And he quoted the book of Matthew to them. That's all he did. He didn't know how to preach. He was 16 years old. He didn't even know the word preach at that time. And he quoted the book of Matthew. No sophisticated training in speaking, nothing. Pure scripture. Dozens of listeners gave their hearts to Jesus that night. Here's what Brother Yun said. That night, even though I was just 16 years old, I learned that God's word is powerful. When we share it with a burning heart, many people are touched. The Bible was given to God's people in the church. Yes, I believe through the Holy Spirit, there was a group of people in the early years of the church who got together to decide what should be the form of this book. And they, they fasted, they prayed, they talked about it, and they came up with deciding that we had 39 books from the Hebrew Scriptures, which we call the Old Testament, and they included 27 books in the New Testament for the letters that the apostles and everybody had sent around and all the witnesses had about Jesus. And that gives us 66 small books that make up the big book, right? You got that? And 
How many of you know that there are challenges to Scripture today? That there are many people going around say, Scripture is not valid. In case you don't know, I'll let you know. Because if you start talking about this at work, or if you start talking about this in a park, where Jesus prompts you to sit down on a bench and talk to somebody, they're going to throw these arguments out at you. All right? I'm not going to go very deep into them, but just know. Around the age of the Enlightenment, the age of reason, Thomas Jefferson, our third president, he, uh, he decided that he was going to remove from Scripture anything that smacked of miracles. Actually, took, he, he took his New Testament, all those New Testament books, the Gospels, and he removed all the miracles. Cut them out, actually. Pasted out and made his new Bible. And he told one friend, I uh, am removing diamonds from among the dunghill. And he came up with a very small bit of Scripture that he called the philosophies of Jesus. And, you know, that, that didn't really pick, on, pick up or, or catch weight until uh, early 19th, 20th century when uh, scholars, especially in Germany, started studying Scripture from a, my opinion, from an atheistic perspective. Because what they did was they said, well, we're going to start with the foundation that God, if he exists, does not interact with human beings. Ergo, miracles do not happen. And so let's study this book from that perspective. And that's what they did. And what do you think they found about the book? Hey, Genesis, uh, the story of Abraham and Isaac, or Abraham and Sarah, could not have happened because uh, eh, things weren't that way back then. Given what we know about how things were back then. Since the time that those German theologians have studied, archaeology has overturned their studies and has proven that, yes, things were valid. The way that Scripture shows it, we're finding more and more archaeological proofs that show those things. Again, I'm not going to dig into that too deep. It's kind of beyond the point of the sermon. What I want you to know is, you know, reason trumped inspiration. And the understanding that all truth is relative became the dominant thinking, even in seminaries. I, this is a painful topic to me. I, I went to a conservative Christian college. I studied Bible and biblical languages. And my junior year, I came this close to becoming an atheist. Because even in that school where people believe that Jesus exists, I had to be exposed to all the facets of biblical scholarship. And reading, reading stuff by people who are atheists studying scripture just sucked the life out of me. The wisdom lit held me. Ecclesiastes, the last three chapters of Job. Psalms, Proverbs just wouldn't let me go. I don't know what it is for you, but I hope when you find somebody who slams the atheist scholar views of Scripture into your face, that you, you have spent enough time with this that you have something to cling to. Instead of reading books about making sense of the Bible, we need to read the Bible and let it make sense of us and of our culture. Frankly, my job as a preacher isn't to make that book more palatable to you wherever you are in your life. 
my job is to speak what this book teaches and pray like crazy that you receive it, that I receive it, that I submit to it and relinquish my life to it. As in the revival in China, you read about the early Methodist movement. You read about a lot of movements in Scripture where people get excited. They just kind of keep it simple, and they talk about this book a lot. They often read it a lot. They often memorize big chunks of it and talk to people about it. We're trying to keep it simple at Schweitzer. Man, it's challenging. It's so easy to make things complicated. So one of the things we're doing to make it simple is beginning September 30th, we're doing uh, home groups. And Jake did a great job talking about that. Thank you, earlier. Home groups, Acts chapter 2, one of those moments in history when the church had an instant growth spurt because God worked miracles and confounded people with who he was and who they were and instantly changed them. You want some of those experiences? Meet in homes. Eat together. Talk about scripture. Hey, fall asleep on somebody's sofa, you know? There's a good story about a guy doing that and falling out of a window and Paul bringing him back to life. It's in there, I'm telling you. Another great thing you can do to keep it simple is the daily text. You can sign up for the daily text here. You can go to, I think, seedbed.com. Sign up for the daily text there. It is potent. He's just walking through Scripture every day, another section of Scripture, and then some thoughts about it that will challenge you to think about, ooh, you want to jump in the tub right now? Because that might be fun. (laughs) That'd be great. See, things like that happen when you're in a house with people that just kind of lighten the moment and make Scripture more fun. Because you can start talking about Jesus saying, let the little children come to me when his disciples were in the back trying to keep the kids down and keep things nice and calm and orderly. Yeah. All right. I want to talk about one more thing before we dive back into Scripture. The difference between reading Scripture from a scholarly perspective or reading it out of a duty Because I've tried in my life to have the habit. Uh, Actually, when I read Scripture now in my life, is I try to do it 30 minutes before I go to bed because it's changing my dreams to put that into my mind right before I fall asleep, right? But sometimes I find myself reading, and I go a page or two and realize that I've been thinking about other things the entire time. Any of you do that when you're reading through the Bible? Oh, yeah. So here's, here's what I've been doing lately. When I catch myself... Okay, I'm not reading the Bible. Somehow my eyes are catching words, but I'm not letting the Bible read me. I pray, Lord, I'm not just laying here trying to do a daily habit. Father, will you please dig into me through your word? I'm going to go back, and I'm going to start back where I, where I started skipping. Lord, and I'm going to read there. Will you please just make this come alive and leap off the page and jump into my life and do what you will, Lord? And it's life-changing. The difference between reading Scripture that way and just getting through it and going to bed is dramatic. Well, this book, mainly 
It's about Jesus Christ in lots of ways. We're going to read a story now. It's in Acts 8. It's a story about a person who was reading the Old Testament, met Jesus in the Old Testament, and then got baptized. Story of the Ethiopian eunuch. You ready? Starts in Acts chapter 8, 26. Then an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Get up and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza, which was a wilderness road, right? So he got up and went. And maybe we could stop right there. Hey, folks, we've talked about it. We've talked about the eight-second rule. We talk about obeying the Spirit. When the Spirit tells you to do something, you get that voice in your mind, and usually it's something that makes you go, I'm not going to do that. That will make me look stupid, or that's terrifying. It might cost me too much. Just go. It's so worth it. Now, there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of the Candace, a queen of the Ethiopians, in charge of the entire treasury. This was the treasurer of the nation of Ethiopia. Pretty important person. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. He got in his chariot, drove from Ethiopia to Jerusalem. That's a long trip to worship. And when he got there, because he was a foreigner and because his body was not whole, he was not allowed very far into the temple area. He would have only been allowed in the outer court. And there would have been guards standing there who would not have let him go any farther because he wasn't worthy. That's the worship experience he was coming from in Jerusalem. And he was returning home. He was seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, go over to his chariot and join it. So Philip did. He ran up to it. And he heard what the guy was reading. And he said, hey, do you understand what you're reading? And the Ethiopian official said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to get in and sit beside him. Now, uh, now, the passage of Scripture that he was reading was this. By the way, this is Isaiah 53, 7 through 8. If you want to kind of check it out, make sure that they're quoting it correct in the Acts, right? Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb silent before its shearer, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied even to him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch asked Philip, About whom, may I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or someone else? And then Philip began to speak. And starting with this scripture, he proclaimed to him the good news about Jesus. As they were going along the road, they came to some water. So Philip just started there in Isaiah. It doesn't tell us what Philip told him. But by the time Philip got done, the dude knew about baptism. So Philip probably told him the story of Jesus, Christ's coming, how Isaiah was a prophecy about Christ's coming, probably told him some of the stories about Jesus that he knew, really, Philip knew those stories about secondhand because he was in contact with people who knew those stories firsthand. Philip knew the stories of Acts firsthand. He knew the stories about Peter stepping out and people thinking he was drunk and a building shaking because the Holy Spirit landed on a bunch of people on the day of Pentecost. Philip knew all those things, and he probably told the eunuch all about that. He told the eunuch about the thousands who were saved and got baptized. 
And the eunuch was going down the road and said, Hey, there's water. What doth hinder me from being baptized? And Philip said to him, Hey, you can if you believe with all your heart. And the eunuch replied, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So the eunuch commanded that the chariot stop, and both of them, Philip and the eunuch, went down in the water. And Philip baptized him. Boom. When they came out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord took Philip away. What? Yeah, the next we read of Philip, he's gone. The Ethiopian eunuch never saw him again. But there's kind of a tradition that there's a strong Orthodox church in Ethiopia because that eunuch went home and told people about Jesus. How about you? As I was reading from 2 Peter, talking about Peter, talking about the joys of knowing Jesus and and hearing from the prophets and and believing it all, were you kind of nodding your head because you've kind of been there and you have some experiences with Jesus and that's exciting stuff to think about and talk about to you? Or not? Sometimes, maybe you're feeling what happens with Scripture and that is kind of an uncomfortable, ooh, Maybe what they're talking about that I've been fighting against my entire life is actually true. And if it's actually true, what does that mean for me? And I don't want to deal with this in this moment. But, oh, the, the thought of freedom is so tantalizingly right in front of me right now. What do I do with that? If you have never given control of your life to Jesus Christ and felt those incredible stories, had the moment of the weight lifted. Folks, now might be your time. Jesus is in this room. He has his arms open wide to you. You know, the story of the prodigal son is not about the prodigal son. It's about the father who sees this son who's totally messed up from a distance and starts running in a culture where old fathers never run because it's undignified. And he ran in with his arms outstretched, couldn't wait to bring him back into the family. That is the picture of how Jesus is running to you, ready to forgive, wipe you clean, and start towards heaven right now a little bit of heaven on this life, and all of heaven after this life.